In Musical Vitalities, Holly Watkins describes the life of music, tenuous, metaphorical, contingent, and mortal, as the cross-modal interpretation of sounds. Sounds are ambiguous. They alert us to dangers and lures, both animate and inanimate. Music retains that ambiguity. Music is the art of possibly animate things. You're listening to the Liquid Architecture Podcast. Today, artist and writer Tessa Laird and curator Zenia Benovolsky discuss how echolocation can act as metaphor, wordplay, and sonic stimulus, the double-sided notion of anthropomorphism, an interspecies culture and resonance. Tessa Laird's essay, Locating Echoes, attempts to bridge the existential void that separates us from bats. It is presented alongside video works by the artist and editor of our journal Disclaimer, Liang Luscombe, and audio compositions created using bat samples by our editorial associate and former artistic director, Joel Stern. Co-commissioned by Liquid Architecture and Eflux, Locating Echoes was developed for the latest chapter of You Can't Trust Music, a research project on sound and music curated by Zenia Benovolsky. The piece is featured in Chapter 3, The Art of Possibly Animate Things, exploring the convergence between danger, safety, community, prayer, and the flow of information through underwater cables, generations, skies, animals, and sediments. Listening to music, we continuously experiment with being other. My name is Tessa Laird and I'm an artist and writer and I lecture in critical and theoretical studies at the VCA. My name is Zenia Benovalski. I'm creator and writer. I'm based in Toronto in Canada and the project that I'm currently working on is called You Can't Trust Music, which is the project that Tessa took part in. It's produced and presented by EFLUX, which is a journal of contemporary art based in New York City. And during the pandemic, we were talking about different ways of engaging with people that were not visual. So one of the ways that we thought could be good is is through sound, because sound has such a spatial dimension. I've been focusing primarily on animal studies, even though I'm an art theory lecturer. Uh, One of the things that I've done in recent years is I published a book about bats, a cultural history of bats as part of Reactions Animal Series, which does still include a lot of discussion of art and literature and film and all the ways in which bats have been portrayed. And I'm very, very interested in any and all artistic practices that really grapple with human-animal relations and thinking of nature and culture as kind of not divisible categories but a kind of a blend of practices which we all participate in.
The series started in March, but it's actually been in planning for a couple of years. The title of the project comes from a text I wrote for Eflex, also called You Can't Trust Music. And that title is also not original. It comes from a, a different text by Gavin Stango and Bill Dietz, which they wrote over a number of years, actually, and was released in 2016. The text talks about how music as an independent agent has many sort of intersecting slippery qualities. You know, it could be the anthem of a country or it could be like a goodnight song <laughs> or it could be, there could be so many different ways. And so in that way, it sort of approaches music as a medium and an agent and its own kind of entity. I thought it would be nice to start with that point because one of the things that I talk about in my writing and my essay is the way in which sound is a register of historical and political events. We live in such a crazy time, especially here. I'm like really right next door to the United States, where it's really hard to tell what really happened. There's many historical visions of, of events and a lot of insidious information. And so, of course, everybody is sort of on track to try and figure out alternative kinds of histories. And so the project starts with kind of thinking about music and sound as being responsive to space. And it borrows from Lelouch and Guattari, who talk about birds. So it starts with birds. Lelouch and Guattari say that birds have a territorial milieu and that the bird, when it sings, it advertises its environment. So taking a little bit of a start with that very, very speculative (laughs) statement, I'm thinking about which environments can be decoded for the bird song. Of course, birds are some of the oldest species on the planet, and many of them have experienced environments that no longer exist. And so it kind of excited me to think about whether we can think about other, you know, kind of environments and other even like geological surfaces or atmospheric surfaces the birds experience that might have traces in their song. Coming from there, I was kind of approaching this musical project as that sort of form of documentation and thinking not only can we decode the sonic information in song and in sound, but also could we experience it without making it super academic? So in some ways I also want to try and experience the knowledge without having to talk about it. But something about sound and music is that there's there's something of that nefarious sort of uncontrollable thing about it. You can't just close your ears the way you close your eyes. And it sort of has a manipulative quality that I admire. And I think that goes back to that sort of sentence of you can't trust music. And that your interaction with it could just really be sort of a one-to-one. The chapter is kind of progressing through different spaces. Started off with yeah, Richie Sakamoto's piece in which he pulled a piano out of the ocean after the Fukushima disaster, and he played it. And so the song that he plays is recorded on that piano. You know, in his mind, the piano sound contains within it the the information of the nuclear disaster and the tsunami that happened prior. And it's also a commentary on the the governance of Japan, which went to great lengths to disguise the the effects of that event. And of course, uh, you know, Sakamoto is also suffering from health issues and I think all of it kind of ends up being standing for some sort of a truth-telling. And it continues in Chapter 1 with projects that concern outer space, sonic space, uh, the work of Pauline Oliveros, communication with the moon, and sort of the outside. And then in Chapter 2, kind of entering more into the spectral, the idea of tinnitus, the idea of 
in their spaces and Marianne Amaker and the sort of renaissance inside in the chapter three in which Tessa is part of, which contends with bats, but also birds, fish, aquatic creatures and oceans. The title of this chapter also comes from an author named Holly Watkins, who said that music is the art of possibly animate things. And so also kind of refers to the fact that the biotic cultures are also a form of culture and that, you know, there's an inclination to make all kinds of assumptions about animals and how their cultural performances are sort of natural processes. But then to consider that there's an actual cultural component is, is much more interesting. And there's going to be one more chapter and then a closing project, which are a secret. Locating Echoes is a reworking of a lecture performance that I gave as part of Liquid Architecture's series, Why Listen to Animals, which was back in 2016. And that was a fantastic series. I was so happy to be a part of it. And it was so fun to be able to put all the research that I'd been doing about bats toward this book, Bat, into a much more sort of experimental framework and to be paired up with uh, James Grant, a sound artist also from Aotearoa, and kind of given free reign to put those ideas into a sort of a sonic form and to play with the language in a way which I couldn't do in the book. When this opportunity came along, it was just so nice to revisit the text and also to be able to add in new bits of information new things that I'd read about bats and new things that I'd read about echolocation and to re-envision the piece with Joel Stern as the sound artist and, of course, to get Leung Luscombe's fabulous videos interspersed in it was really fun because it became something else again. And I think collaborating is something which I don't do enough of. Um, I'm always so thrilled when I do at how things extend far beyond your own kind of personal sphere of imagination. I first became interested in bats, it's actually all the way back in 1990 when I was an undergrad art student and I visited Sydney for the first time as a kind of a young adult doing my own thing. I went to the Botanic Gardens and saw the fruit bats, the flying foxes hanging from the trees and I was just fell in love basically. And ever since then, went out of my way to find out as much as I could about bats. And I used to paint a lot of bats as a young art student. The more I found out, the more I realized how sort of multidimensional they are. And of course, fruit bats and flying foxes are not actually the echolocating bats. They are megachiroptera, and it's the microbats that echolocate. I read as much as I could. I was always on the lookout for bat imagery wherever I went. And I was always surprised at how, you know, you'd go to a museum and you'd find some artifact from a range of different cultures and there would be a bat, you know, and I would always sort of make a mental note, oh, this culture made images of bats. And with the Reaction Animal series, it's it's a series of books, each of which takes a single animal species as its focus. Um, They've been coming out of London 
for, I don't know, the past 20 years probably, um, a wonderful series edited by Jonathan Burt. And I kept waiting for the book on bats because that's all I wanted was to, you know, to buy the book and read the book, but it didn't come. And so eventually I contacted them and said, look, I could write a book about bats if you want. And they said, oh, yes, we definitely do want. (laughs) We realize that's a big gap in our series. So then I began to really start researching them in earnest from about 2015 to when it was published in 2018. The other thing, though, I think is kind of interesting is that while that series has individual books about all kinds of different bird species, for example, you know, they have owl and flamingo, sparrow and heron, but there's only one book on bats. And in fact, there are, you know, 1400 species of bats. And I think we tend to think of bats as one entity. And actually, they're this incredibly diverse order. So I think that the fact that there is just one book on bats says something already about our indifference to that species. Echolocation, very basically, is a system of navigation which is used by bats and quite a few cetaceans such as dolphins, whales. Some birds apparently are capable of it, and of course humans can be as well. Blind humans can do it, and we we all can do it, but we, we don't learn to generally. And... It's simply that you emit a sound and through interpreting the way that the sound bounces back to you, you're able to determine whether or not there are objects in your path and you're able to kind of basically map the space in which you are moving. And bats have evolved the most sophisticated echolocation systems. And for a long, long time, humans didn't really understand how bats were navigating in the dark because the echolocation happens well beyond human frequency of hearing, so we can't hear them. They appear to be completely silent, and yet they can navigate flawlessly in the dark. And so it wasn't really until the early 20th century when it was finally understood what was going on. There were theories and suspicions, but they weren't able to prove. They didn't have the equipment to be able to prove what was taking place. The person who was sort of known as definitively cracking um, echolocation and figuring out what was going on was called Donald Griffin. And interestingly, he was quite disappointed with Thomas Nagel's essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? because he used the term uh, paralytic perfectionism that Thomas Nagel was saying, we can't know what it's like to be another species. And Griffin was saying, 
well if we don't try to find out then we kind of risk not knowing anything you know so he's kind of saying let's just do what we can to kind of understand each other once he found out what was happening i think this kind of was around the same time that sona was being developed as well as a human tool so it's sort of interesting the ways in which i think as humans understand better animal worlds we also find ways in which to mimic those worlds and to use those tools our sensoria are expanding as we understand more about animal sensoria There's this wonderful ethologist, Jakob von Uxgul. He's long since passed. I think he was working maybe around the 1930s. He had this idea of every being as having its own umwelt. He imagined it as a kind of bubble that you inhabit. And that is your kind of sensory experience of the world. And each being is kind of individual but also species bound as in our each species has its own kind of umwelt potential while they're all kind of unique and specific they also overlap he ends up saying we create something like a symphony of bubbles which i think is such a beautiful visual concept and it at the same time allows for a specificity and a uniqueness but also imagines that there are these points of overlap and that there is a kind of a resonance between them as well and i like to think that we're not you know these completely discrete units but that we are kind of in constant resonance with all these other elements and we can't necessarily know what another being including a human being is is actually thinking feeling and experiencing but i don't think that there's a kind of nihilistic idea of i will never know you but rather that this inter vibrational resonant frequency exchange that we share is actually this really productive space the thomas nagel what is it like to be a bat essay which zenia refers to in her introduction to the piece is something that has really polarized a lot of people within animal studies because it does take the perspective that we will never be able to understand the bat as humans we will just never know what that feels like but there are other scholars who say that what we share as beings that are kind of in existence we we all have a sense of being in the world and it's a sense that however different they may be there is something fundamentally shared about it we ought to focus on the things that we do share rather than focusing on the things that we don't because that creates a kind of a world view in which separations are more important than relations 
and it becomes very easy then to mistreat or exploit other beings because we think that we're so different from them that it doesn't really matter what we do to them or they don't experience the world the way we do and therefore they kind of become fodder for exploitation. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because at the same time anthropomorphism can be damaging But I like to think that there is a form of strategic anthropomorphization where you can use it when you need to and you can use it tactically. You can use it for the better of kind of human-animal relations. But you don't want to get stuck in it either because I think it does have some sort of traps and pitfalls. With Tessa, it's kind of interesting So because her project was one of the first ones we discussed. So we talked about it for a long, long time before it actually aired. And also in kind of choosing the project because, of course, thinking about acoustics in the way that sound reverberates, I really think that's a sort of a natural thing to think about because of the echolocative element. For me, the sound really mediates between myself and a space but more recently it's also been mediating between time you know different compositional times different historical times there's so much information in the sound itself it carries an information that the information is not in it technically but it sort of carries this other info so i was wondering if you're in your studies with that echolocation was a big part of your work tessa how big of a component is sound in it and whether you find yourself being able to access a different space through the study because my first love have been flying foxes and flying foxes don't echolocate and also they are the most visible bats in melbourne and at the moment i'm thinking a lot about the flying fox colony and its survival and my biggest concern is how these bats, um, they're really in danger in heat waves. And so I'm kind of working toward becoming a bat rescuer. It's a long-term ambition. That's kind of been my focus. And the echolocation interest was primarily at the point of when I was researching the book on bats because I was really thinking about echolocation for its kind of metaphoric richness And at the same time, really trying to absorb myself in it. And one of the things that I love about both echolocation and bats in general, and maybe I'm going to contradict myself when I was saying that we share things in common with bats, I think what we also find so fascinating about them is that they are kind of inverse to ourselves because they hang upside down and they're active at night and even I was thinking they're kind of the inverse of the visual is on the outside and the sound is on the inside because for the bat the sound is on the outside and it creates visuals on the inside and so I think that just the very idea of echolocation 
it really upends the way we perceive the world. You know, it's really, really good for us to destabilize the kinds of normative, habitual ways that we experience the world and particularly, you know, the dominance of our vision. So for me, echolocation has more been a kind of a mental exercise than anything to force myself to engage with the world differently and to imagine it differently. approaches I think are very different between myself and Joel and Leon but maybe the thing they share in common is that they're all kind of quite idiosyncratic and they're all taking their own perspective on thinking how might a bat see feel echolocate. Basically Leon read through the article and went on her own kind of research journey when Something sparked her interest and then she started to look up all these online videos and and all these kind of image banks of how, say, for example, echolocation had been visualised before and just kind of put together her own versions of those using her own kind of inimitable, very handmade kind of slightly clunky, quirky visual aesthetic to sort of re-envisage them. We gave up very early any idea of scientific accuracy <laughs> and it was really just a playful how might we envisage these taking place. The audio also, Pessa procured the sound of a bat it was the last of his species, and someone had um, recorded his very last cry, which is really sad. And at first, I think the idea was to try and animate Tessa's speaking voice with the sound of this bat, which I guess was abandoned because it was too scary. And then Joel, he recomposed some of the echolocation sounds that he was in possession of, and also kind of inferred this spooky whispering sound onto Tessa's voice. Joel was kind of quite keen to do a version which was me speaking the whole piece from beginning to end. And we did record a version like that. But then there was also versions in which my voice was sort of highly altered and treated. And in the end, we decided to go with one which was much more sort of experimental and much more like echolocation and not just reproducing my voice because it seemed like a sort of a double up, having the essay and my voice reading as well. So my voice kind of becomes bat, um, but also the bat voice becomes something else. The real bat voice becomes, I guess, a form of techno or a form of sound for sound's sake. 
piece, I'm bringing together a lot of different quotes from other authors. And of course, in the sonic version that I performed, it was much harder to give citations. So at least with this version, people can go through and they can see who said what, and that it's not all my personal genius, unfortunately. But one of the things I also did, I thought, I didn't want to have a, a lecture in which I kept name dropping, you know, philosophers and theorists. And so every person is given the name of a bat, the Latin binomial nomenclature of a particular bat species. There's an oscillation of identity. And I think one of the things that I love about echolocation is that it's an oscillation as well. I mean, there's a kind of ascending out and a bouncing back and ascending out and a bouncing back. And it's happening at such a rapid rate that it's creating this vibratory field of information that we can't hear. But I imagine sort of if it was visualized that it would be vibrating or that it would be kind of dancing. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of these concepts of shimmer that were sort of popularized by Howard Morphy and Deborah Bird Rose, but they were taking the concepts from Yolnu Rak painting and how that vibratory field of cross-hatching in different colors, what it does to the eye is similar to, they say, like a light dancing on the surface of water or, you know, heat rising from the ground, that kind of shimmer. And it's sort of found in all these kind of natural states, but it's also found in these kind of cultural creations as well. So I felt like that had a lot of relevance to this idea of nature and culture being this kind of continuum of practice. I've been really invested for years now in, I guess, what some people call fictocriticism and just the idea that academic writing doesn't have to be this incredibly dry and kind of monolithic entity that is kind of a gatekeeping force um, and that is not pleasurable to engage with. I think it's really important that ideas be pleasurable and actually kind of lure people rather than hit you with a stick. <laughs> I think some of the writers that have been most inspiring for me have been the ones which I find just incredibly engaging and rewarding on a kind of aesthetic and stylistic level. I'm really interested in Michael Taussig as a writer and the term he uses for academic writing is agribusiness writing because it's kind of monocultural and actually really poisonous and bad for the planet and that we really need to kind of foster these much more diverse and multi-layered and sort of self-sustaining, I guess you could say, ecosystems, which are communities. So that idea of bringing it back to community, I think, is a really great one. 
this idea of it being community, that's actually one of the things that's really important to me. And it's also one of the ways in which the project develops. So with Tessa, she's working with Joel and with Liang on this piece, but many instances, the pieces in the project would have, would put together a, uh, an artwork and then have somebody else write about it and someone else entirely else comment about it. And so it creates a sort of like polyphonic essay that's kind of co-created and academia can be, you know, it's, it's hierarchical and there's so much battle it takes place through essay writing. I love it. It's, it's like, it's kind of amazing. So it was really important to me to kind of create this community and not only between uh, camaraderie, between people, some who are musicologists and scientists and authors and art writers, but also people who are musicians and then people who are maybe both. Uh, for example, in the same chapter, there's an interview of Ryan Clark by Michael Nardone, who is a poet based in Montreal. And Ryan is a sedimentologist and a marine biologist based in Louisiana. And the track that plays is a saxophone track that's almost an hour long by a geologist <laughs> who's also interacting with the landscape. He talks about the deltas that formed around Louisiana and how some of them were formed by a shipping channel. Some of them were carrying transatlantic slaves and others were created and to accommodate that really insidious industry. And so in other ways, when he's doing the research around the shorelines, he's also thinking about the way that these geologies and these geological formations have contributed to a musical emergence and, you know, the music that came across with the people that sort of ended up being a pivotal part of American music. And then coming back to the saxophone, so it's sort of like this like crazy full circle between topology, acoustics, history, culture, of course, and sound. And so it was really nice to kind of bring that work then into discussion with a piece like Tessa's and other pieces like Aisha Hamid's also talking about the brown Atlantis and the conversation between shores and in her project, which is also really a project, she brings in, you know, this cacophony of voices that are also discussing the, the many ways in which migration, whether forest or for labor, has, has affected musical practices. So I think it's really important to have this sort of community that we kind of talked about and this, the ability to speak together and to sort of like have side notes and have this kind of developing narrative arcs and also thinking about how there, it's never just one story. You know, there's always these sort of angles and versions. And I'm trying to represent as a really multidimensional narrative that involves other ways of looking at things.
Locating Echoes by Tessa Laird, Liang Luscombe, and Joel Stern is published in Chapter 3, The Art of Possibly Animate Things, of You Can't Trust Music, curated by Zenia Benovolsky. Find the link in our show notes. This podcast was produced by Mara Schreitfeger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. You can support our podcast and online journal Disclaimer through a Patreon subscription for as little as $5 a month. Find the link in our show notes.